Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless of Who Killed, the women of New Bedford, Mass. 30 years ago marked the beginning of a reign of terror. The women who went missing had two things in common. They were drug addicted and each from, or at least last seen in, New Bedford. Nine were found murdered along local highways. Two were never found and the killer was never caught analyzed a lot of these areas and it would lead us to believe that we want to go back to those areas and look for at least two people in hopes of finding them if they are there. Now no one has ever been charged for the murders leaving a cloud of mystery hanging over southeastern Massachusetts for three decades. As we headed into 1989 six bodies had been found in the highway murder case. By the end of March there would be two more. No arrests had been made. The families of victims had suffered most. The condition of the bodies made it difficult for medical examiners to determine a cause of death, except with two victims. Investigators say they were strangled. 11 women missing nine bodies recovered. 30 years ago this month, women started disappearing from New Bedford. In just a six-month time period, 11 victims vanished. One of the most horrific crimes that Southern New England has ever seen, and it's still unsolved to this day. DA says police are now looking at a number of possible suspects. Tony DeGrazio became a suspect. James Baker was a, a truck driver. I wish to state that I demand that your harassment of me be stopped immediately. As investigators found the remains of nine women between the ages of 19 and 36 years old. And they all tend to kill within a comfort zone with an anchor point that could be the killer's home, it could be their place of employment, it could even be a relative's residence. The only suspect ever charged in connection with the serial highway killings in Massachusetts has died. 61-year-old Kenneth Ponte was found dead in his New Bedford home on Tuesday. Officials say his death does not appear to be suspicious. Ponte had been charged with murder after the remains of nine women were discovered along highways in southeastern Mass. However, he was cleared due to a lack of evidence. The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, which has come out with this comprehensive report, defines a serial killing as, quote, the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offenders in separate events. Eleven women go missing in six months. Nine of them found murdered. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Who Killed, a podcast that takes a closer look into cases that you may have heard and others that you may not have. On this week's episode, I'll be discussing the disturbing unsolved case of the New Bedford Highway Killer. But before I begin, I'd like to thank the listeners for tuning into my new show, My Passion Case, which can be found on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. And on that show, I interview other podcasters about the cases that haunt them the most. I've been putting episodes out on both feeds, Who Killed, as well as My Passion Case. But please advise that I do eventually plan on releasing My Passion Case on its own feed. I will continue to produce and host both shows, and I do have great guests and really incredible cases to cover in 2020, and I am really excited. I will also be representing all of my shows on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando this May 1st through the 3rd. If you've never been, it is the best way to catch up with all of your favorite true crime personalities. And now that I've gotten all the business out of the way, let's get into this week's case. Who killed the women 
of New Bedford, Mass. New Bedford, Massachusetts is a fishing town roughly of about 100,000 people that's about 40 miles outside of the metropolis of Boston. New Bedford is nicknamed the Whaling City because it was one of the most important whaling ports in the 19th century. And the city actually resides in Bristol County, Massachusetts, and it is most widely known for its great seafood industry. Now, currently, the top three employers in the city are New Bedford's uh, South Coast Hospital Group, Titleist, and Riverside Manufacturing. So things have changed a little bit as far as the demographics go, but during the summer of 1988, it was hot, it was muggy, and fishing was still a primary means of income. And that wasn't the only thing that was going on, because a serial killer had been prowling the streets of New Bedford And in just a six-month span, this killer was able to kill nine women and dumped their bodies along the highway. Now, John Element of the Boston Globe was writing about the case as it went down, and his reporting has been very helpful while compiling the story. But there are some important facts to know about this case before we get too deep. Basically, the New Bedford Highway serial killer is an unidentified serial killer, he or she is responsible for the deaths of at least nine women and the disappearances of two additional women. The killer is suspected to have assaulted numerous other women as well, and the killer's victims were all known prostitutes as well as substance abusers. The victims were all found in different surrounding towns despite being taken from New Bedford. Now, those cities included Dartmouth, Freetown, Westport, and they were all along Route 140. Now, the victims came from a certain demographic, and that made reporting on missing people a little bit more challenging, especially, you know, since women in prostitution, it's typical for them to not always be the most reliable people, not to say that there's anything wrong with it. Now, according to the Associated Press, on December 3rd, 1988, the fourth body had been identified in what they were calling at the time the roadside slains, and that was 25-year-old New Bedford woman, and police said that she did have contact with them as a prostitute. She was identified as the fourth of the five women killed and dumped at the roadside in southeastern Mass at that time. Now, Dawn Mendez was reported missing earlier in September from New Bedford. Her body was found near where the remains of five women had been found since July, just off the brush off of Interstate 195. Now, the killings of these women, all in their 20s, most likely were the work of a serial killer. So, the state police, they brought in trained dogs to search for more victims, as well as evidence or anything that could tie these victims to a possible perpetrator. Now, at the time, Thomas Gibney, a spokesperson for the Bristol County District Attorney, Ronald Pina, said that Mendez had a five-year-old son, as well as a pretty lengthy record of arrests. Mendez reportedly had links with the Weld Square area, which, if you ask the police, is a well-known area for drug dealing and sex work. New Bedford is a medium-sized fishing town of 100,000 people, but it is also a city that suffers from a lot of the same issues that major cities suffer from. The Boston Herald quoted a woman from the Weld Square area that stated that Mendez was not a regular in the prostitution scene, and that most of the time Mendez actually worked as a babysitter. 
Despite all that, her body was discovered off of the Reed Road exit ramp off of 195. There was another body discovered just about 150 yards inside the Freetown line along Route 140, which is just about three miles south of where the first body was found in July of that year. Now, the third body was found in November, while the other bodies were found in July. The search began to take on a different tone when the Connecticut State Police was actually able to bring in some search dogs, and police and searchers actually reached out to some of the best search units in the world, and they scoured the area looking for any more bodies or any evidence. With the state of decomposition, it was impossible to determine races as well as the causes of death. And officials hoped to identify the bodies using dental records. Now, this was 1988 and 89, so they had to send those records to the FBI in hopes that they would be able to determine who those people were. Police believe the victims would eventually be identified as all from the New Bedford Weld Square area, which would lead you to believe that they also thought that this was one particular individual perpetrating these crimes. Because as I mentioned before, Weld Square is known for drugs and prostitution. Now, investigators did not have a suspect, but they believed that the killer or killers were from the area and very familiar with the highway network. Now, it was believed that someone could have been traveling the area, but that idea is kind of thrown out the window since the authorities felt like it was more of a local because of the way that the, I guess, the killer approached the scenes and the confidence that they had as far as where they dumped the bodies. John Element of the Boston Globe, as I said, covered a lot of this case and he covered the case when it was first conceived back in 1988 and he wrote in December of 1988 that in what may have been the act of someone planning to kill again the person who took Nancy Pava's or Piva's life in July also actually took her clothes so her nude, nude body was found in July of that year 1988 dumped along the eastbound lanes of Interstate 195 in Dartmouth now this is where it gets a little weird her clothes were discovered on November 8th near the remains of another victim who had been found along the westbound lanes of 195. So the woman found in November, authorities believe, was killed at least one month after Pava. Now the experts say that serial killers switching clothes could be seen as either an act of uh, rational criminal planning or as that of a killer seeking souvenirs for a bizarre private collection, quote-unquote. Bristol County investigators lean towards the first view. They believe that Pava's clothes were left near another body to cloud the victim's identity and confuse the search for a killer. The district attorney went on to say that the six women whose bodies had been found since July in the New Bedford area had been murdered by the same person or the same group of individuals, but for some unknown reason he refused to state that the murderer was actually a serial killer, which is again odd because this fits exactly the definition of serial killer. But state police attached to Pina's office also contacted the FBI's behavioral research specialists in Quantico, Virginia, and they talked with the investigative task forces in San Diego as well as Seattle, looking into the Green River killers. At that time, he had not been caught, and that would be one Gary Ridgway. Now, criminal and psychological experts say that the information about the murders that has become public shows all the brutal hallmarks of a serial killer. 
The experts even said that sufficient research has been done into previous serial killers that provide a rough outline of the kind of person who may be responsible for the murders in the New Bedford area. The experts said the killer would be highly unusual, though not impossible, for more than one person to be responsible. Experts said he would likely have all the outward appearances of normality, but would be seething inside. Now, quoting from the Element article in the Boston Globe, he references a new book at that time, The Sexual Homicides and Patterns and Motives, that was written by two members of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit that presented a decade's worth of research on interviews with 36 different violent offenders, 21 of whom were serial killers. What they determined was that every one of the serial murderers, including the son of Sam and John Wayne Gacy, had suffered psychological, physical, or sexual abuse as a child. Most of these men also exploded into violence in their late 20s and early 30s, and they say that the majority of them are white males. Things have changed, obviously, and as time has gone on, it's demographics have changed as well. The FBI study, like others, also found that a large number of serial killers are at least of average intelligence, and that some are actually above average, which makes them a little bit tougher to catch. Again, the experts said, serial killers have been found to be psychopaths, but not technically legally insane. They are people who have lost touch with normal standards of morality, and they find it easy to dehumanize their victims, whom they often consider prey the way a hunter thinks of a deer. It does not surprise the experts that at least three of the victims were known to frequent, as I've mentioned before, the Weld Square area, which was known for its drugs and prostitution. Now, prostitutes and women addicted to drugs are two groups that basically make it pretty routine for people to get in and out of vehicles. So the idea that they're able to determine within a few seconds if this person's safe or not, I mean, there sure are people out there that are street savvy enough, I'm guessing, but... In a lot of these cases, especially in the Green River case, I mean, he just kept going back to the same area, the same area, and doing the same thing, and still, he got away with it for years, decades even. Northeastern University criminologist James Fox said, quote, it's easier to kill a person if you think they aren't worthy, unquote. So authorities at this point in the case were only able to conclude how the victim died in only one of the New Bedford area cases. In that instance, the victim was strangled and was possibly strangled by their own underwear. It is a belief that serial killers like to strangle their victims out of a desire to be close to them as they die. So the search for the New Bedford killer, just one of many complex serial killer investigations in the 1980s, sparked what experts believe is an increase in serial killings. And not to freak anyone out, because this was the 80s, and that was their thing, they said there were at least 350 serial killers at large in the United States. Now, that number seems very high. I will even acknowledge that. So I don't know if I can endorse that number, but I'm just saying what it's been, what was said in the 80s, and the 80s were a whole different animal. So it's uncomfortable to think that there's even serial killers out there. I get it. But to think that there's 350 of them is it's pretty scary. So in 1988, the percentage of homicides solved by police was on the decline. And it was actually down from 90% in 1960 to about 75% in 1988. So according to the FBI, the reason that this drop 
occurred was the increase in the amount of serial killings. Now, anybody who's watched Mindhunter would know that they didn't even start referring to string killings, serials. They had all sorts of different names for what a serial killer was before they landed on serial killer. So to say that there wasn't really any serial killings before this, I highly doubt it. I just don't think it was classified as such. So in King Washington, for example, they spent six years at this time, they had spent six years, and $15 million unsuccessfully searching for the Green River Killer. They were under the impression that he had murdered 40 women, turned out to be much higher than that, and his name actually is Gary Ridgway, and they were able to connect him via uh, paint ships, I believe. And again, prostitutions, drugs, and the ability to lure somebody into your car all these things make it too easy to become a victim. What authorities say about catching serial killers is that most of the time they're caught because they slip up. And they do so by cutting corners and police basically have to catch a break. So that's a lot of hoping and wishing, in my opinion. Not necessarily the most uh, comforting thought that they're just waiting for the serial killer to screw up. But again, if it's a serial killer you don't know and you don't have any DNA, you're pretty much stuck waiting for them to commit another crime. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Now let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. So I've been in therapy for, I don't know, about 30 years. And I've been taking care of my brain for 30 years. And it's pretty much the way that you take care of your car. Because if you don't take care of your car, it gets rust, it falls apart, needs to be repaired. Well, the same thing happens to your brain. So you can do all sorts of different things like learning a new language or taking power naps to help your healthy brain. But then again, there's also better help online therapy. So as I mentioned, I've been in therapy for 30 years, but again, I'm not your normal guy. So it is what it is. And I believe that everybody should experience some sort of therapy in their lives. One of the greatest things about BetterHelp is that it offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And the best part is our listeners get 10% off the first month at BetterHelp.com who. That's BetterHelp.com slash during this time, back in 1988, there were skeletal remains discovered by hunters walking through a gravel pit, which was also near uh, Reed Road. 
Now, it was eventually concluded that the woman was murdered by the same person who had killed all the other women. And at this point, this is when the district attorney decided to sort of turn off the access to the media because he felt like the presence of cameramen and all the reporters and different searchers could disturb a crime scene and therefore there would be evidence that would be lost. So I understand that, but it does kind of hurt the public as far as their ability to help the investigation. One of the reasons the DA decided to cut off the media access is that there was a search actually planned for the gravel pit before the hunters discovered the body. That tip actually came through on one of their toll-free hotlines, and it was from a confidential source. The tipsters did also urge authorities to search in a second area that had not been examined by investigators, and that was within the proximity of an interchange of I-95 or I-195 and Route 140. Now, police said they have interviewed suspects in the killings, but had not made any arrests. State police still considered individuals in the New Bedford area who had a history of violence against women as their most likely perpetrators. But apparently that did not happen because the case still remains unsolved. John Element, the reporter, went on to say that when Mary Harris was slain in Dartmouth in April, a suspect was arrested within one day and based on evidence found in the room by state police. So the state police were involved with investigating that killing as well as the killing of the six women in the New Bedford area. But despite both being homicides, the circumstances facing the police were radically different. Now Harris was a dancer and she knew her killer. Now he turned out to be a bouncer at the club where she was appearing and the six women were most likely killed by another killer who had been using the New Bedford area as his quote-unquote hunting grounds. Most experts agree that prostitution and drugs will always make a resolution to a case a little bit more difficult. And one of the experts has been quoted as saying it's more difficult to solve these types of cases because the offender you're dealing with, they're dealing with someone who is planning the crime, someone who has initiated the activity based on some sort of fantasy. And anytime you're dealing with a fantasy, you're dealing with the human mind, which, as everybody knows, is completely unpredictable. Now, in Seattle, the investigation into Ted Bundy, uh, they found that investigators were able to scour the room where a body was found, and they were able to quickly identify the victim and then begin reconstructing the final hours of that particular victim. Now, in many cases, the murderer knew his or her victim. Even drug dealers who are killing each other know each other for a period of time, he said. The New Bedford case, the victims were missing for weeks, and in some cases months, before the bodies were found. And before I end this week's episode, because this is a case that's got so many different suspects, avenues, paths to go down, I just wanted to read off the list of victims because those are the people that are always forgotten in all of these cases. And the first victim, we'll just go down the list, and it's Robin Rhodes. She's 28. She was last seen in New Bedford in March or April of 1988, and her body was found in March of 1989, just around the side of Route 140. Rochelle Clifford Doparella, 28, she was last seen in New Bedford in late April of 1988, and her body was found in December of that same year along Reed Road, which was just about two miles from Interstate 195. Then you had Deborah Lynn McConnell, who was 25, and she, again, 
like all these people were found or last seen, I should say, in New Bedford, Mass, in May of 1988. And her body was found in December that year as well, just off of Route 140. Then you had Deborah Medeiros, 30, who was last seen again in New Bedford in May, late May, of 1988. And then her body was found just about a month later on July 3rd of that year. So you have Christine Montero, 19, who was last seen in May of 1988. Then you have Marilyn Roberts, who was seen in June of 1988. Nancy Pava, who was 36, and she, again, was last seen in July of 1988. But her body was found on July 30th alongside Interstate 195. Then you had... Deborah DeMello, 35, who was last seen on July 11th. And basically, her body was discovered on November 8th, 1988, also along Interstate 195. Then you have Mary Rose Santos, who was 26, and she was last seen July 16th, 1988, with her body being discovered that following March. Then you had Sandra Botello, or Botello, 24, who was last seen in New Bedford, on August 11th, 1988, and her body wouldn't be discovered for a while, and that was April 24th, 1989, again along Interstate 195. Then, the 11th body, Dawn Mendez, 25, last seen in New Bedford on September 4th, 1988, and her body was found on November 29th, 1988, along Interstate 195. So you have all these victims, and you don't have a lot of answers, unfortunately. Now, no one has ever been charged for the murders, leaving a cloud of mystery hanging over southeastern Massachusetts for three decades. 30 years ago this month, women started disappearing from New Bedford. In just a six-month time period, 11 victims vanished. 30 years ago marked the beginning of a reign of terror. The women who went missing had two things in common. They were drug addicted and each from, or at least last seen in, New Bedford. Nine were found murdered along local highways. Two were never found, and the killer was never caught. This was the killer's grave of choice, callously dumping women's bodies along the highways surrounding New Bedford. You always have hope. You always have to have hope, because without hope, you have nothing. The condition of the bodies made it difficult for medical examiners to determine a cause of death, except with two victims. Investigators say they were strangled. 11 women missing nine bodies recovered. Maureen Boyle covered the highway killings as a reporter and is the author of the book Shallow Graves that chronicles the crime spree. He knew all of the women who were found dead. He had ties to all of them. His investigators found the remains of nine women between the ages of 19 and 36 years old. Some detectives wondered if the killer intentionally dumped the bodies outside New Bedford city limits so New Bedford police wouldn't have jurisdiction over the crimes. At five, we revealed how the killer has never been brought to justice. New at six, we look at who police had on their radar screen and what happened to the accused. They have tracked some 500 serial killings across the country, all of which occurred along interstates. DA says police are now looking at a number of possible suspects. A new complaint is issued against Neil Anderson for assault with intent to commit rape. James Baker was a, a truck driver. Tony DeGrazio became a suspect. Kenneth Pont. Kenny Pont was looked at. I wish to state that I demand that your harassment of me be stopped immediately. He knew all of the women who were found dead. He had ties to all of them. 
Thank you, Steve. We have breaking news now out of New Bedford. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Doreen Scanlon. A one-time suspect in the unsolved highway killings has died. 61-year-old Kenneth Pont was found dead in his New Bedford home Tuesday. Pont was the only person ever charged in the murders of nine women whose bodies were discovered along Route 195 in the late 1980s. Pont was indicted in the murder of one of those women, but was cleared after a lack of evidence. His name resurfaced in 2007 when investigators began digging in his backyard and the former attorney was arrested for stealing. In November, an ABC6 investigation on the highway killings found Pont had another run-in with police over the summer when he says a woman held a knife to his neck. But her version of the story is that Pont revealed secrets of the killings. That case is ongoing. At this time, Pont's death does not appear to have been suspicious. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Who Killed, a Slow Burn Media production. I am your host, Bill Huffman, and on this week's show, I will be speaking with the award-winning author and former crime reporter Maureen Boyle about the New Bedford Highway Killer. We discuss her book, Shallow Graves, which gives a very detailed account of the victims and the investigation. She has become the go-to person for information about this case, and I was privileged enough to have her on and bring more attention to the killings. If you have not listened to part one and would like a full refresh on the case, I suggest going back and taking a listen. In the span of just six months, starting in spring and ending sometime around the end of the hot, muggy summer of 1988, a serial killer was prowling the streets of New Bedford, Massachusetts. He had taken the lives of nine women and there are two others that are still missing to this day. As I mentioned last week, this is one of those cases that I feel has been forgotten over time. The sad thing is, for the families, they will never forget the killings. Maureen Boyle was a young reporter for the Standard Times in New Bedford and was assigned to the police beat. Having worked with investigators and crime scenes, she was used to dealing with victims' families, but was always very mindful of the task at hand. She even gives some really good advice to all young journalists out there on how to approach the situation as a crime reporter. Her book, Shallow Graves, tells the story of the nine women aged 19 to 36 who were strangled and left along the highways of New Bedford, Mass. in 1988. Now, Boyle is quick to point out that all the women had troubled pasts and suffered from serious drug addiction, but she makes it clear that these women were not involved in prostitution as much as they were addicted to heroin. With her book, she has given the victims and the families another reason for hope as she continues to make presentations about the case and sign copies of her book. I will provide a link in the show notes on where to buy Shallow Graves. Currently, Boyle is the director of the journalism program at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts. With her work, there is a renewed sense of hope that this story won't be lost to the annals of crime, but actually can be solved. As we discuss in a lot of these cases, the older they are, the more pressure is put on finding answers, because before you know it, the killer, or the victim's parents, or siblings, may not be around to see a resolution. I hate to keep saying this when it comes to cold cases, but it must be said, the public is key to solving this case. These women were addicts, looking for a fix, and they could put themselves in a stranger's car for a deal and never be seen again. As we've seen in the Green River Killer case, 
Gary Ridgway was able to revisit the same spots to pick up his victims, and he got away with it for more than 30 years. The problem with a case like the Green River Killer and the New Bedford Highway killings is there aren't a lot of people willing to talk about some of the seedier sides of a town that is not really known for its drug issues. Plus, these people, drug dealers and drug users, are trying to stay off the police radar, so they aren't going to be run into the police station if they see something amiss. The heroin addiction these women faced in the late 1980s was not something that was discussed as much as opiate addiction may be today. These women were known to be addicts, so they could disappear for a few days without anyone knowing. But generally, these women did not live on the streets and would be around. As the bodies were being recorded at the coroner's office and the missing reports were eventually made, Maureen Boyle was able to see a connection. Investigators worked their side of the case while Maureen worked hers. Our conversation was very enlightening, and she really does keep this fight going for the families. Again, there were nine bodies, two missing, in just six months of 1988 in the city of New Bedford, Mass. So now let's join my conversation with the award-winning author, Maureen Boyle, and discuss her book, Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Killer, on this week's episode of Who Killed the Women of New Bedford, Mass. I'm very lucky to have you. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for spreading word about this case. That's one thing that I have noticed. So I've started uh, in the true crime podcasting thing about two years ago. I've been a producer at some of the local news stations here in Cleveland. And one of the cases that I did originally was about Amy Maholovic, and that happened in 1989. And when Mm -hmm. I was researching her case... Is that the girl who disappeared from a mall? Yeah. So she disappeared from okay. the plaza yeah. um, from, in, from yeah. Bay Village. And I grew up, we were the same age, and she actually was about three miles from where I lived. So it was something right. that I grew up with, and that was what my first podcast series was actually about. But during the research, I came across the New Bedford Highway serial killer investigation, and I was, to be honest with you, shocked that I didn't know more about it. And I feel like... That's just a shame. Yeah. yeah, and there's a reason why. There's a reason why a lot of people don't know about the case other than those that, that are in New England. And part of it has to do with the time in 88, 89, and even 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, the internet was fairly new to the general public so that you didn't have people on Facebook. You know, you didn't have uh, social media. You didn't have Twitter. You didn't have, you know, the that immediacy of, yes, this is going on. That wasn't around then. Uh, people were relying on their local newspapers, uh, their local television stations, and the network news. And while the case, the case did, the case was on uh, a couple of uh, network uh, programs, but not like you might see today. I was going to ask you about that as far as what the national coverage was. Did they originally... Because I've read on your on the blog, you know, or on your website, you know, you talk about and a lot of these cases, hindsight is 2020. You know, you don't know yes. the bodies are are piling up until it's too late. In a lot of these cases, like you said, it's, it's the era that it was in. Also, the fact that they were sex workers, too, I think. So I step back a bit about okay. them being sex workers. OK, there were a few of the victims had a record for prostitution arrest. OK, but these were not 
sex workers. And even that term workers, I really find misleading. Uh, that gives the impression that somehow women are making money and sustaining themselves through sex. Right. And, that those, and that is not the case here. That is not the case here at all. This is a case of women who were addicted to heroin and cocaine and were out um, and about in the city. Now, perhaps they were in vulnerable in situations where they were very vulnerable. And uh, a couple of them did have records for uh, prostitution, but not all of them. These were not the regular women that were on the street who were very, very desperate for, for money for drugs. A number of these women had no record for prostitution. And that's something that people seem to forget. And it's something that really annoys, irritates, and hurts the families of these women. I can uh, see that. And yeah. I appreciate and, and you clearing not, that up. Yeah. And and because I, I had this uh, discussion online with one person who uh, took issue uh, at one of my speaking events that and started going on about how I was disrespecting sex workers. And I had to, and I said to her, um, that and I don't know if you quite understood this, but these are not workers. These are not people who are, you know, uh, getting a paycheck at the end of the week. That they get overtime. That they're, you know, clocking in and out. In this particular case, the unifying factor in all of the cases is the drugs. And this was a period of time where no one was talking about heroin addiction like they are today. Families were very, very uh, embarrassed when their loved ones were addicted and they didn't know where to turn for help. There was not an awful lot of treatment options as there are today uh, for particularly women to overcome their addiction and especially if they didn't have good insurance. So that was really the, the key the key factor in all of this. You had a, a period of time uh, where you've had a number of people who are addicted to heroin. Uh, no one was talking about it. I mean, there were uh, there were some groups in New Bedford, of course, that were very, very focused on finding what they call treatment on demand, being able to get people help right away. But it, but it really didn't exist at that time. So you had women who were addicted. Their parents didn't know what to do. Their, their brothers and sisters didn't know what to do. And they were also very embarrassed because no one was talking about uh, addiction at that time. As a result of their addictions, women in particular could want up in very precarious situations and in around people who could do them harm. Uh, that doesn't mean that they were selling themselves, so to speak, uh, on the street, and that's how they met their demise because there were a number of other women who were out there all the time who had long records of prostitution and were alive for years uh, later. So I, I really believe it is more the addiction element here than the prostitution narrative that a lot of people throw out there as it being very, it's simplistic. It's, it's a way to say, well, you see, they were in this situation and of course this happened. And that's really not the right way to look at it. Women were out there perhaps in very dangerous situations because of the uh, the disease of heroin addiction. So I just wanted to make that point very, very clear. I think that that is very <laughs> important for the listeners to know that, you know, because a lot of these cases do get kind of bogged down by what the public perception is. And if the public perceives it to be something that it's not, and it needs to be cleared up, especially since we're in a day and age where we can do that. And you've obviously gone about it with your book and doing all your presentations, your podcasts, your talks. I mean, all all the things that you've been involved with, you know, you're getting the word out there now much more than I can imagine it was in 1989. I was only a 10 year old or 11 year old kid at the time. 
So I do recall the big thing being crack and the big thing being say no to drugs and cocaine. But you're right. They never talked about heroin. And I never, yeah, and I never saw it. I mean, I never heard about it. It just didn't seem to exist. Yeah. In, in the greater New Bedford area and in Massachusetts, while there was a lot of discussion where you were concerning crack, in this area, crack, at least in New Bedford, in the New Bedford uh, area, really did not take hold. It was primarily Coke, regular Coke, and, and heroin, which was was interesting. It was While other parts of the country were really dealing with crack, it, that was not the situation in, in New Bedford. It was, was heroin. Well, what was interesting during this period of time with the women, they didn't all disappear all at once, and they weren't reported missing all at once. And because they were adult, and during that period of time, things weren't computerized, their disappearances, in, some, in many ways, well, they did fall through the crack. Uh, one woman was uh, reported in Fall River, and a couple of women were never reported missing. Some of the women were reported weeks after they went missing. There was only about two who were uh, reported very, very quickly, you know, within a few days. But yeah. uh, so, so there wasn't this, oh my God, you know, Jane Doe didn't show up for work today, and she's not in her apartment, and oh my God, what's going on here? There wasn't that, that alarm was not sounded in many of these cases right away. And, and a couple of them there were, and, and family members went out looking for them, not realizing until, you know, months and months and months later that they, while they were looking for the person, they were most likely were already dead. Uh, yeah, I think that that's the one thing that's unfortunate when you have a serial offender like this. You kind of yeah. are waiting for them to slip up. And what I was going to ask you before is what was the demographic, like what are the demographics like in New Bedford? I've read that it's a fishing town. It's, it's a beautiful town. And just give the listener a little bit of an idea of what the town was like in 1988. Um, in 1988, and to a certain extent still today, it's, uh, primarily Catholic. It is a large Portuguese population, Portuguese and Irish and, and French. Most people can trace their route to the to another country. There are a number of immigrants, uh, first or second generation. Uh, you will often hear people speaking Portuguese in, in the city. There's great restaurants. It is primary industry is the fishing fleet, which is a very, very difficult job, uh, to say the least. Um, I was going to ask you if that, if you thought that that could be one of the driving factors behind some of the drugs, that, uh, the cocaine and the heroin as far as like self-medicating and keeping yourself going. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the, um, when people, so that's a very touchy subject on the waterfront and in the fishing industry. While there are some individuals who are on boats and are using drugs, a large number of people are not. Uh, so that the, those that are fishermen in the city don't really don't want to be portrayed with this, you know, broad brush that, oh, everyone who's out to sea is using drugs to keep going. They do have to stay alert out there, uh, but but not everyone is out there using using drugs to stay awake. I think that's a very that's a minority of the population. Yeah, I wasn't trying to paint a broad stroke across the no. industry or anything like that. I was just yeah. referencing the amount of uh, wear and tear on the body and and just yeah. not having access to proper, you know, even medical care, at, you know, on some of those boats yeah. are not necessarily getting even like the workers we talked or the work we talked about before, some of them don't come with benefits. So <laughs> very, very, very true. <laughs> um, and I said that the fishing industry, it is very, very rough. You know, people are out there for you know, weeks on end, and then they're, they're back home for, for a period of time. So it is a, a very intense, intense industry, very focused. 
Do majority of the fishermen stay there all year round? Yes. Okay. Uh, there are some, some fishermen that come up from swordfish fishermen who come up from Florida, uh, often during the summer months. And they did look at, at that as any of the fishermen who are coming up from Florida as possible suspects. You know, they examined that theory. But most of the fishermen are local. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering if that yeah, was involved with that. Yeah. yeah the, 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 the community of New Bedford is uh, very rich in history. Uh, it was part of the Underground Railroad for slaves that were fleeing north mm -hmm. uh, for freedom. Many of the same buildings that existed way back when are still there. The city's done a very good job in the historic district of trying to recreate what was there while keeping the, the buildings alive with new new purposes and restaurants and things like that. It's a bit, I, I like to call that um, New Bedford and the surrounding area sort of the hidden treasure of Massachusetts. People keep on, you know, they say, oh, that's, that's a terrible, terrible place. I say, oh, yeah, keep saying that so it remain, remains uh, affordable, but it really is a hidden treasure. We vacation up in Michigan, in northern Michigan, and literally there's no stoplight in the town. And I'd yeah. rather have nobody know where that is because it is the most beautiful place. And it is one of those, I love towns that are able to take that history of what they're known for and able to utilize what architecture is still there because I think that's what really brings out the personality in a city, especially and, in New Bedford. Uh, yeah, and New Bedford is, is primarily working class, very much a working class community. Uh, today, it, there's a really a, a vibrant arts community also, but then working class, hardworking people, a very family oriented, very close knit community where people know each other. And that's uh, what I think was very frightening about this case is that because it's such a small community, even though it's a city, that someone could do something like that and no one knows who it is. That is scary. It, yeah, it, it, you know, this isn't New York. This isn't Cleveland. This isn't L.A. This isn't Dallas. This yeah. isn't Miami. It, it's, you know, hometown USA city, New England, where people stay. You know, they're born there and they may move to the suburbs. They may not, but they always have that tie to the city to think that there is someone that could be behind them in the supermarket, could be next to them at church, could be at the desk to them at work, that it could be someone that they went to grammar school with, that they went to high school with, that may have dated their friend, that may have been friends with their brother or cousin. Mm. Uh, that's what I think it unnerves people to this day. Yeah, I think not knowing is one of the driving forces behind the reason why I cover the cases that I cover, because I think that, I mean, the case that I covered in originally, that case is still 30 years unsolved. And it's just there's only 15,000 people in that city and 20,000 in the city that I live in. It's just like, yeah, the feeling of having somebody behind you at the grocery store or coaching your kid's soccer team or or being the high school teacher or this, that or the other. Yeah, I mean. It is very frightening. How old were you when you first started covering this case? I was I was a reporter at the Standard Times. I was in my 20s. The Standard Times is the daily newspaper in New Bedford. And I was a reporter there for, and I stayed there a number of years after, after that before going to another paper. But I was primarily the police reporter for the, the Standard Times for much of my time there. And that's how I found out about this case and the, the links between the possible links between uh, the women 
and particularly the links, possible links with uh, missing persons. There had been a couple, when the first bodies were found, first one was found on a weekend. Uh, the weekend reporter did a short, very short piece on it. It really did not uh, create a lot, uh, stir up a lot of attention. Part of the reason was that there had been this tragic uh, drowning in New Bedford for the 4th of July weekend where a, a mother and her child uh, drowned in the harbor watching the fireworks. Oh, so sure. a lot of the media attention was on that, not a body that was found, remain, remains found on a highway with no name and, you know, nothing to, to report on at that point. Uh, other than this is what they found. Yeah, Jane Doe. You got it. And, you know, there was no ID, there was no wallet, there was no license, there was nothing at that point. Yeah, there wasn't really so, much you could go on at that point at yeah. all. And then, then a couple of weeks later, uh, a second body was found along another highway nearby, right outside of New Bedford. And that, again, was on a weekend. And that was in the same weekend of a major bike race in the in the city, which also... There was a lot of focus on that. that there was a, you know, a, a small story on that and a follow-up. Does anyone know who these people are type of thing? Mm -hmm. uh, and no one came forward. And then later on in the summer, uh, the uh, one of the detectives had mentioned to me that there had been a number of missing persons, uh, women who had gone missing, that uh, he just didn't feel very feel right about, that they seemed to meet a certain profile, primarily either drug use. And where they may have hung out. And I checked the missing persons reports and there they all were and they all had the same you know, characteristics. And we did a, a piece on missing persons, uh, the women who, women who had gone uh, missing, reported missing, those that we could c confirm with the families. There was mm -hmm. one woman who was not included on that initial list because I wasn't able to make contact with her, her family at that time. And then it all, it all broke after that. So, are you technically the one that broke it as far as the connecting the dots or the investigators already? There was a, a detective by the name of John Dextrader. Uh, he is now deceased. He had first began noticing the connection. He was, unfortunately, there wasn't an awful lot that he could have done early on because the first two bodies were not found in New Bedford. Actually, none of the bodies were found in New Bedford. So technically, it wasn't a New Bedford case, but he he was a very, very dedicated detective, and he worked very, very hard uh, in convincing the DA's office to take a really hard look at this, and then the bodies started showing up. I, I'm just trying to imagine in the six-month span of, at least from the research, the first body appears, and then at the end of the day, you end up with, the, what, 11 total bodies, or... No, uh, there was nine. There was eleven women who were reported missing. Okay, right. And only nine bodies have been found. Uh, they all went missing between March. Believed, they believe all of them went missing between March of 1988 and September of 1988. So there's that very short window there. And the women were found between July of 1988 and April of 1989. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's sometimes. Uh, people think that the killings happened over a two-year period when it was only that, that short window, but That's crazy. They, uh, they were discovered into 1989. Yeah, and two of the women still remain missing. They have not been found. And that's something that the families really need to know where these two women are. One of them is Christina Montero, and the other one is Marilyn um, 
Cardoza, Cardoza Roberts. The families. Uh, so the families, you've obviously been in touch with a lot of the families. How do you go about when you're, you know, a young reporter and you're interviewing these families about their unfortunate circumstances, obviously, and I've been there to a degree, but how did you approach it as a, as a young reporter? and As a police reporter and as a reporter in general, I've interviewed uh, grieving families a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that did it in New Hampshire. I did it uh, in New Bedford. It was not something that was new to me. And my thinking always has been, and it is to this day, that I would rather, there's some reporters who will not interview grieving families. They just can't do it. And that's fine. Um, my feeling is I would rather do it myself and know how to do it and, and not make it a horrible, horrible experience or even more horrible than what they are going through. I, I would rather do it and be sensitive and not make their worst day, week, month even even harder. So it, it's not about me. It's about the family. That's really good advice for any journalist. It's Absolutely. not. It, it's not. It's not us. It's not us. It's not us. It's the people that you report on. It's the people whose stories that you are telling. That's what's important. It's not. It's not how I feel. It's how they feel. Yeah, I try to make sure that I don't emphasize too much about the killer. I try to focus on the victims, and I try to focus on unsolved cases because those are the cases that need resolution. And with this case, it's just shocking that something like this could have gone on in such a short period of time. And, you know, in some of the clips that I was listening to from back in the day, I mean, they just they were kind of some of the some of the interviews were kind of crass. I mean, the the way that they approached it, they didn't I don't know. It just didn't seem like they were giving it 110 percent or 100 percent. I don't know. That was just my perception. But and, and, you know, in, the, in that, that's good, good perception. There were some some reporters that were that handled it with you know, great class. And there were some who were just I was appalled. I was absolutely appalled seeing how some reporters acted uh, during this period of time, whether it was staking out the school of the daughter of one of the, the victims. Uh, she was in middle school at the time and there was the camera crew out in front of her school. Uh, I mean, there were, there were some things that just, Everyone was looking for their their edge to the story and to to move it forward, yeah. um, and, and forgetting that you're talking about real people. And yeah. there did become this mob mentality because it was as time went on, there was more and more media attention on the case. Mm-hmm. However, that said, uh, the local media, you know, the channel six, uh, ten, and twelve, they were very very tasteful uh, for the most part because they would be back in the city at another time. Mm-hmm. They weren't just uh, parachuting in. And the reporters for the Boston Globe, uh, John Elliman in particular, he was very, very good with victims and very thoughtful in his reporting, as well as uh, many of his colleagues that he was he was working uh, with. Yeah, I read a lot of John's uh, articles, actually, yeah. and they're that yeah he did he did approach it very professionally and and that is a shame that the families like you had mentioned before i mean you don't need to make their day any worse than what is already going on and that's just adding insult to injury if you're you know if you're suffering through that already so as far as suspects go was there anybody that had jumped off the page when you were investigating that you thought oh this guy it's got to be him uh, that's the problem there was there were so many people uh, that you thought this could be him. 
uh, as I was doing my reporting over the years, uh, there was different times and I would turn to my colleagues and go, ah, they're going to solve it. This is the person. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, it's like, no, this is the person. Um, and or that's the person. And that that really is what makes this case so frightening is that there were so many people that could have been the killer. Yeah, the means and motive. when you think of yep, yeah, and when you think of that, um, it really is chilling that there'd be so many different people. Because at, at one point there was at least a dozen people that were under investigation. And we, when you think about that, to realize that there were so that many people in your community that could possibly be this killer, I think that unnerved a number of people, and still unnerves people. Understandably so. It, it, you know, there's that, that uh, saying that, you know, don't lift up a rock unless you're prepared to see what's underneath it, because huh. uh, it can be very ugly. And that's what I think everyone discovered when they started looking at, looking closely at individuals and thinking, oh, my God, I did not realize this is, this person could even be capable of this, or I, this person could be capable of this, oh, my God, and there's this other person, and there's that other person. And to complicate matters at that time, a number of people that were undergoing that were in the midst of divorces uh, or breakups, spouses were calling uh, mm. the police, insisting that their spouse or ex-spouse was the killer, yeah, and, and that complicated that. matters even more. Yeah, that's a I've seen that in other investigations as well. It's uh, you know they put out a sketch or something like that, and somebody's got an axe to grind, and hey, that looks yes, like, yeah. And then there's the psychics. There was a lot of psychics who came out of the woodwork. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I bet 1989 was probably the peak psychic. <laughs> I mean, peak yeah. psychic time, if you really want to think about it. I mean, I can just picture yeah. Geraldo and Phil Donahue having, you know, psychics on their shows. And I actually grew up four blocks away from where Phil Donahue grew up. So just, oh. <laughs> just a funny yeah. <laughs> yeah. His mom lived there all through my childhood. So it was just yeah. one of those ironic things. Yeah. So, so they, they did have, as I detail in my book, Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer, they, uh, I detail some of the suspects that they, they had at the time mm -hmm. um, and why they looked at them. And, and that's something I think the, the public has to realize that they did not just willy nilly go out there and say, oh, we're going to investigate this person or investigate that person. Number of the people that they or say all all the people that they looked at, there was good reasons for them to look at them. And if they did not do that, they would be derelict in the investigation. And the investigators did get a lot of flack or some of the, some of the people that they investigated saying, oh, this person's being targeted or that person's being targeted when primarily they were looking at, well, this person looks like a good suspect and let's look further. Yeah, I guess it really wasn't the, if you got your name associated with it at the time, it probably wasn't a good way of getting it off of the case. You got it. You got it. And, and also during this period of time, this is when, you know, the DNA uh, was really in, in law enforcement was really in infancy. You know, today, if this happened today, mm -hmm. it would have been solved. But back then, they needed much larger samples of, of DNA uh, for testing. They, you know, the touch DNA was not was not even thought of by law enforcement at that point, let alone it being uh, introduced into court. They were primarily looking at blood evidence, hairs, and things like that. Yeah, looking for the old, you know, fingerprints and it was, basic detective stuff. Yes, yes. And, you know, they were just entering into this new forensic world. Yeah, it's definitely changed a little bit in the last three yes. decades. Oh, yeah. And and remember, this was also a period of time when 
a lot of people did not have cell phones. You know, there was car phones and there was mm. those big bag phones. Yeah, uh, you know, you didn't have a computer in your pocket, let alone, you know, taking video of of people, of surveillance cameras. There weren't, you know, surveillance cameras on every corner. There was, uh, you know, and, and where there were surveillance cameras, the video was really bad. Yeah, and the, most of the times they were just taping over what they had, so the quality was nothing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. good luck zooming in on that picture and getting yeah. played or anything along those lines. Was there one particular, um, you know, Pont, I, I see that Kenneth Ponte, is it Pont, Ponte or Pont? It's, it's Pont. It's Pont, Kenneth Pont. So he obviously is, seems to occupy a lot of the media attention. Do you feel like he had anything more to do with it than what um, he did? I don't know. It's, I mean, he's dead, obviously. Uh, but. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there are some investigators to this day uh, insist that, that he was the killer. There are other investigators who will say, no way was he the killer. But he did deserve uh, close attention uh, by the district attorney's office and the investigators at that time because he knew the victims. He left the area about two months after the last victim uh, disappeared. He was a co heavy cocaine user. Mm. He did not want anyone to know, you know, publicly because he was an attorney, what his, uh, that he was having problems. So he was th there, was, there was that element to this. I could see that definitely being a, being an, a weird element in the, in the 80s, especially, you know, with the heavy use of, at least from a 10-year-old or 11-year-old's mind and looking back on it nowadays you know seeming like cocaine was the drug of the of the decade but uh definitely definitely he seems to fit the bill and yes he did and when you uh and, and i detail this in the book of how he was very strange and it is his strangeness and how he uh reacted with women that really drew the uh police uh investigators attention he was paranoid he was weird and he used a lot of coke <laughs> Um, he injected Coke um, and Jeez. he would have girls on the street buy the Coke for him because he, he was an attorney right. and he did not want to be out there buying it himself. Wow. Now so that's he, so that's he, an interesting perspective. So he was there was a good reason for, for investigators to look at at him. It wasn't that they just picked him out of out of the hat. He, there was a yeah it doesn't seem like any yeah. of these people were picked out of a hat it does no. look like they were really thorough as far as what they were looking for i'm just still just amazed at the fact that the amount of bodies and nobody still to this day being and you know what's going on right now with the case i mean anything well uh, right now you know this is a cold case right however it's it's not a dead case so to okay. speak Investigators over the years have looked at, at different evidence, followed up on any tip as forensic science and forensic testing has changed. They've retested material and looked at other ways to, to perhaps look at the case in, in through different lenses. And they do have a cold case unit there in the Bristol County DA's office. That's the county prosecutor's office here in Massachusetts. And that's where New Bedford's located in Bristol County. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it, it is still very much alive in a certain in a certain sense. Do they work on the case every single day for, you know, the next mm -hmm. a year? No. When needed, they do. Right. But but it's not a, a hot case like it was in uh, 88, 89, 90, 91. But so it's. It, they do look at, at things uh, over the years. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because I know that like with the case that I originally covered, they kind of 
you know, they have a task force that they get grants for and they're able to do some investigating and whatnot uh, that way. They brought in Phil Torsney, the guy who caught one of the guys. Who yes, caught, I, yeah, yeah, I, I've spoken with him. He's a very nice guy. Very, very, very dedicated. Nice yes. And it's ironic. He speaking of northern Michigan, he lives in like way up there in, yeah. in the middle of nowhere. So uh, he comes down to Cleveland every once in a while and still does investigating for that case, which is yep. really, really. He is, he is one of the he is a one of the top uh, investigators around. And, and I think the state's very lucky to have him uh, as part of the renewed in looking at that case again. Now, was he in, I know that he eventually went to Boston. Did you ever, you had said, you just mentioned that you had actually spoken with him. Did you speak with him about this case? No, no, about something okay. else. Okay. I was just wondering if he had an, any involvement. Did the FBI have any involvement in this case or was this just all um, local he, jurisdictions? They did have some involvement because the DA's office reached out to the FBI, reached out to Quantico uh, for uh, assistance in um, profiling, uh, how to interview people, as well as in some forensic analysis of evidence. So the, F the FBI was not the lead in this case. It, it was a state case, but they they were they did offer help in the case. I did wonder if that if they got involved and if that you know I know that they've got certain parameters that they have to follow as far yeah. as what they what they get involved in what they don't. But I just didn't know if there was like a certain, you know, because the numbers are so high. I didn't know if they were involved more than yeah. what I they, they, they were. They, were, they offered help uh, to the investigators and direction and things like that. How long did you work on Shallow Graves before you actually uh, went to publish? Some people could say that I had been working on it for 30 years. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'd always known I wanted to tell the story of the women in, in this case, but I had always waited, was waiting for it to be solved. And as the years have gone on and it was became clear that, you know, people were dying and uh, there's a possibility that it might sure. not be solved. I really did want to have uh, the case documented for future generations so they know exactly what really did happen during that period of time. Because over, over time, people misremember things and they misremember the case, even misremembering how many bodies there were, how many uh, when they were killed, and start in interjecting other things, facts into it that just didn't happen. Uh, so I started working on it. It was published in 2017. Started working on it about two years before that. Okay. Yeah, I I def I think that you've hit the right time to kind of. I mean, I noticed that on your website you've still got. You're still doing presentations and on the book, and I'm assuming those are mostly on the East Coast. But hopefully, this case will get back into the national spotlight. And I know that the local area, as far as the media coverage goes, I mean, when I was researching this case, there was definitely a lot of local coverage. But it's one of those cases. Yeah. It seems like, like you had said, it, people misremember things, people forget things. Cases kind of blend into other cases. And yes. it's hard to necessarily de determine which case is which. And I think that's why a book like yours 
and the publicity that you do for it, I think, is invaluable to the families that are involved, the victims and, you know, everybody that's involved. I think it's invaluable. And I'm happy to have a platform. You know, obviously, you've been on podcasts before, but I'm happy to provide the platform to get this story out there because it's something that really does need to be solved. And that's a 100,000 people in the town. That's a big case to be hanging over your heads. Where do you see it going from here? Where do I see the case going from here? Hopefully, it's solved. That's where, that's where I'm hoping that it, it goes from here. Have you been able to determine if they have any have any DNA? They're not saying. Okay. They're not okay. saying uh, whether they have DNA or not because it is still an open case. Right. So there, that's one. Of, that was also one of the challenges in in writing the book because it is an open case and mm-hmm. there's there's certain information that that the police cannot and should not release. There's certain things that as much as we all want to know about it. Certain things only the killer knows. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why that information cannot be released. And, and I understand that completely. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one. <clears throat> yeah. And, I, and I, I was trying, I tried very, very hard uh, when I was writing this to make sure that I did not include any information that could possibly lead the investigation down a, a fake road. You know, someone reads something and says, oh, well, I'm going to throw that out there and they'll think that, you know, I have information when they really don't. Mm, yes, I've come across that on uh, many cases where people, like you said, interject their own opinions or they want to be the people that solve the case or get the leg up on the story, like the people sitting outside the school of you know one of the victim's children. And it's yes. just, it's that's just poor journalism, and it's definitely not the way a victim's family should be treated. And yeah. I think a lot of these cases, people just forget they get so lost in their own fame and ego, and you know, like I mean, they just being a producer and stuff like that, I think a lot of times uh, you see that and they make it about them and it's not about them. It's about the victims. And, you know, it's just yeah. what, so what it, you're doing is great. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can never lose sight of what is the point and the purpose of your reporting. And that is to tell the story of the of individuals who are not there to tell their story um, and to, in some cases, help people either find, um, find peace if they ever can, uh, and to find the killer. And, you know, there is no peace until a killer is found. And even then, it's only a partial peace for the families. Yeah, there's never certain, there's definitely not closure when it comes to a family that loses a child or loses a loved one. There's, There's just no such thing. It's, there may be some sense of relief, but it's still not going to bring their loved one back. And that's a shame. And I'm going to, I'm actually going to be at CrimeCon in Orlando this year. And I'm going to definitely bring your book down to, down to my booth because I just think this case is just one of those more people, more people that know about it. Yep. I agree. That's the most important thing. I try to make sure that focus on cases that other people may not cover. And that's why when I came across your book and came across you and literally you're like, you're like the number one person about this case. You are the, yeah. you are, Thank you. but it's so great that you put it in print and you put it out there and you did set the record straight and you continue to do so. And I think families are probably very appreciative. And well, it I'm, is about them. It, it is all about them. And that's, that's what's important. And you're currently a journalism, you're in charge of the journalism department? Uh, no, uh, the journalism program. Uh, okay. I teach the journalism program at Downhill College. Uh, that is a Catholic uh, liberal arts college in Easton, uh, Massachusetts. 
the lovely school. How far from New Bedford is, is that? That is about 45 minutes from New Bedford. Okay. And it's south of Boston. You know, technically it would be 45 minutes south of Boston also, but nothing is 45 <laughs> minutes uh, south of Boston, even if you're in Boston. Right. Everything is, uh, it's like trying to get into Manhattan. You, you can't. <laughs> Speaking of that, did you ever have any thoughts that it could be, a, I mean, were there any people that commuted on highways that would have been commuting to any major city? People could would be commuting to Providence or up to, to Boston, no, uh, you know, north, parts okay. north, Taunton, uh, Brockton, Boston. Now, during that period of time in 88, there was not as much traffic as there is today. Route 140 in the Freetown area, that was really desolate uh, at that time. And the belief was, and even on 195, where bodies were found in the on the ramping system, they were very, I don't want to say unique ramping systems because there's ones just like them everywhere, but it's one of those on-ramp, off-ramp areas that are heavily wooded mm. so that okay. someone could pull over and do anything over there and no one would notice. And in 1988, that area there, there wasn't a lot of traffic coming on and off those ramps there. I was just going to say, like you said, if there, if it was today, you know, there'd be cameras that would be picture, you know, cameras yes. of the car entering the highway. There would be so many different surveillance cameras out there that would have captured the killer or captured the killer's vehicle, at least. Yeah. And, and many more cars. Uh, there's so much more traffic on on the highways than there was in 1988, particularly in this area here. So the area has grown up. Do you know what the, like, have they said the exact thing that they've could use to connect all the victims? Was there, I mean, is it certain fibers or? No, they're, they're not saying that. Okay. Yeah. Got to ask. A lot of, yeah, a lot of it has to do with the victimology mm -hmm. and uh, where they were found and how they were all found in a, a, a tight area in in a short period of time. You know, they were killed within a short, a relatively short period of time. And I have just one more question because I know you are very busy and you've probably got 8 million things to do today. Do you think that there's any possibility that this could have been two people working together or is this just a, you think this is one person? It could be two people. You should never, you know, rule out or rule out anything in any case and there's a possibility that it could be two people it just seems like with that quantity in that amount of time or in that short period yeah. of time that's just the only reason i brought that up so but i really appreciate you coming on the show and thank you so much for sharing this story and i will continue to promote your book and again tell the listeners where they can find your book all right. Well, thank you so much. It can be found on uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and any of their local bookstores can order it. And then you also have, so, your, have a website. Uh, shallowgravesthebook.com. Uh, and there is also on Facebook, Shallow Graves colon Hunt for the New Bedford Serial Killer. That And people can reach out to me on Twitter. It'd be Maureen. E Boyle, B O Y L E 1 on Twitter or my author page on Facebook. Uh, there's another second uh, Facebook page, just simply Shallow Graves. And, right. you know, we post different information on that. Uh, it's an open page, so you just have to click like. Okay. So people, if they have any information, they can, they can submit information to you if they, if they actually yeah, know something. Certain. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yes. Excellent. All right. Well, <laughs> Thank you Thanks. so much, Maureen. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you have a very safe week and, and a great day. 
All right. And thank you so much for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. No problem at all. I love getting attention to important cases like this. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Who Killed? I would also like to thank author Maureen Boyle for joining me this week to discuss her book, Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Killer. I hope she was able to bring some new ears to this case because this is one of those that has kind of been lost in cracks of time and really still needs to be solved even if it's been 30 years. And thank you guys for tuning in to my other show, My Passion Case. I'll be dropping new episodes every Monday and it's a show where I interview true crime personalities about the cases that they just can't shake. This week's episode will be covering the Golden State Killer and I will be talking with Mike Morford of the Criminology Podcast. If you enjoy Who Killed, you can help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the right-hand side of slowburnmedia.com, that is slow minus the W, or via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. I will also provide a link in the show notes. Any amount is appreciated, and it really does help keep the podcast running. Now, for the second year in a row, I will be representing Who Killed and My Passion Case on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando. If you guys have never been, it's a must for all true crime fans. It really does give you access to all the personalities that you've seen and heard from throughout the years. If you do enjoy this episode or this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. That will also help keep the show in the spotlight and also keep the cases that I cover in the public's eye. I will be dropping new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, and if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I've covered as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys so much again for listening, and until next time, be safe. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick and me, Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network.